Today on this uh, Labor Day weekend, uh, we're going to be focusing on Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 is a psalm that can find itself, I think, particularly being familiar to us. It's often, when I talk to people, it's not a common question I ask in terms of like, what's your favorite psalm? But when that conversation happens, uh, this tends to be in the short category of things. And I think part of that is because this text uh, is particularly seemingly very individualistic. It's very much about, here's my life. Here I am as a person. And what does it look like for me to relate to God? And I think there's definitely that lens of this psalm. And I think it definitely has a lot of that to offer us. But I'm hoping as we look through Psalm 139, we can become curious around what it looks like for not only the exploration of our own life and calling, but how that calling inevitably leads us not to be passive, but instead to actively partner together, to develop community, to be a part of God's justice and mercy in the world. Uh, with only spoiling literally the very first sentence of the rings of power, at the beginning of it, Literally just the first sentence, Galadriel says, nothing is evil in the beginning. It's a reminder to me, at least, that in our Christian worldview, we often think about uh, sin and evil and destruction and violence uh, being the starting point. When in reality, even our story in Genesis starts off with, it's good, it is good, when God looks at each and every one of us created in the image of God, God says it is very good that the beginning and foundation of each of our stories is this divine goodness that we have, that we can share in. And certainly we are tempted to not see it. Certainly there are ways that we begin to envy one another and to do violence and harm to one another. There are ways that we have lost this original goodness or at least our understanding and, re and connection to it, but it is always there. At the beginning, that is who God has created each and every one of us to be and to live from. Thomas Merton says in New Seeds of Contemplation, it is true to say that for me, sanctity consists in being myself. And for you, sanctity consists in being yourself. And that in the last analysis, your sanctity will never be mine and mine will never be yours, except in the communism of charity and grace. For me, to be a saint means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and discovering my true self. God leaves us free to be whatever we like. We can be ourselves or not as we please. We are at liberty to be real or to be unreal. We may be true or false. The choice is ours. Merton goes on to say our vocation is not simply to be but to work together with God in the creation of our own life, our own identity, our own destiny. 
We are free beings and children of God. This means to say that we should not passively exist, but actively participating in God's creative freedom in our own lives and in the lives of others by choosing the truth. Merton reminds each of us in a world where we are tempted, even though we're aware of all that Madison Avenue and every ad that pops up as we are scrolling forever and ever and ever is constantly trying to remind us of the ways that we lack, of the ways that we should envy and want other people's things or things that we have not yet had and that the thing that's only six months old that's in our pocket surely can't be as good as the thing that just came out yesterday or that they are about to now announce in a few weeks. That in this world that constantly tries to get us to play act into something else, that constantly wants us to conform to several different paths and ways of being, that our truest vocation is this vocation of living out of our God-created selves, of allowing the image of God to shine through us and to the world, and that when we get in contact with that, when we live from that place, it invites us not just to be passive, not to say like, okay, that's cool, yeah, God loves me, but it invites us into the very life of God, which is communal and participatory and invites us to partner with others and helping them to see their God-created selves and helping them to live into justice and liberation to be able to find peace. That when we live from this place, it's not only freeing for us, but it invites the whole community into God's freedom. So Psalm 139 begins, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. The more I thought about Psalm 139 in preparation for this week, the more I really thought of it as oftentimes being a mirror for our own lives and per, perhaps the way we might approach God and scripture at any given moment. Because maybe it's telling a little bit of where I am at with God right now. But when I initially read this passage, I kind of got this Pepe Le Pew vibes. You remember this from Looney Tunes, right? Like he's always this person who is pursuing uh, the object of his interest. And the object of his interest usually wants nothing to do with Pepe Le Pew, right? There's like some real consent issues happening uh, <laughs> around this cartoon. But he will not be deterred, right? It's like no matter what, no matter what's happening, he's going to be there. He's right there with you. You're not going to get away. And... In a culture, in a country, in a church where we have all experienced our fair share of different types of trauma and particularly religious trauma, I think it's easy to understand how it might seem like God is just like that, sort of saying to you, oh, you may think you're going to deconstruct. You may think you're going to be able to get away from me, but there's nowhere you're going to go. I'm going to be right there hounding you. I'm not going to let you go. And that's a reading that you could have of this passage. Uh, I would suggest that that is not the heart of this passage or how the psalmist likely was viewing God. God was not this great annoyer that was pursuing and would not let the psalmist go. Uh, 
when I was sharing with my Old Testament class that I used to teach in San Antonio, we would talk about how uh, the book of Proverbs and the wisdom books of the Hebrew Bible uh, is often sort of like for the first third of your life kind of wisdom. It's very much this kind of like, you know, don't touch the hot stove or it will burn you, you know, and that's good to know. You don't want to touch a hot stove when you're a child, you need to know, don't touch it or it will burn you and that kind of thing. But that that wisdom ultimately is not the end of the story, right? And then you have a book like Job that is really wrestling with that. Job is sort of the epitome of the Proverbs man. He has been righteous. He has done everything. And he's saying, God, I followed all of this and none of it is turning out the way these Proverbs said it would, right? And so there's that tension that then Job and other books like it invite us into with that first third of life uh, kind of wisdom and many people see Psalms uh, as being the resolution, if you will, of this. That there is this uh, initial point of, here's this wisdom, and then it's like, are you really sure that's very wise? I'm lamenting, I am sad, I am frustrated, I am angry with all of that. And that in Psalms, we find both praise and lament together, side by side. People are able to air their grievances out of one side of their mouth, they talk about the amazingness of God. And at the other side, they're like, but God, for all of your enemies, may you crush them. And I want to be there to see it. And so Psalms really does invite us, I believe, to bring all of who we are, all of our experiences, all of our emotional terrain to the table that there is a place for it and that God is giving voice to it and that really what the Psalms are was a community that was able to sing back to God after and pray back to God after centuries of trying to follow in God's way and in God's word. This is our lived experience on the ground for how this is going. And so when we think of it in that sense, this idea of God searching and knowing on one hand might seem invasive, but particularly given that later in the text, it is also tied to the fact that the psalmist is reveling in the idea that God created us. First, it seems within the divine womb, and then later, perhaps even in some sort of mother earth womb, because it's literally talking about us being formed in the earth. Uh, there is the sense that whoever we are, and whatever it is that God knows about us and sees about us, it is because we are, in fact, a part of God's masterpiece. That each and every one of us are imbued with God's image, and we are meant not to try to play as if we were someone else, not to judge our life by the neighbor next door or the coworker. I guess, we, do we have cubicles anymore? The coworker in the Zoom screen uh, on your next meeting, but instead to say, what does it look like for me to be faithful in unveiling and living true to the life that God has given me to live? to be the person that God has created me to be. And the psalmist, if that is true, then can say, God, you're, you're searching me, you're knowing me, and, and perhaps it is that God is a companion that, that is trying to ask the right question, that is trying to help the psalmist himself or herself awaken to 
the, uh, the reality of who God has created and called them to be, that perhaps even when many times we are tempted to check out of that process, right? When we might want to, as the psalmist says, we're going to sit down and take a break right now, or, or we're going to get up and go far away from here. No matter where we are in that journey, that God is this faithful companion saying, I know the goodness, the beauty, the power of my image present in each and every one of you. And if you can get in touch with that, if you can live from that place, the power, the beauty that will shine, not only for your life, but for other lives as well, it's going to be unbelievable for you. So I thought perhaps a fun thing on this uh, Labor Day weekend might be not for this time right now, but perhaps as you're going throughout your rest of your week. You might go on a scavenger hunt, but it could be, as this suggests, find something outside or around your house that reminds you, and then I just listed some different types of uh, emotional states of being. What's, what's something you find that resonates with joy or sadness, fear or excitement, confusion, or surprise, or wonder. Instead of looking for particular objects, you might invite yourself as you are searching your neighborhood or your house, or if you find yourself out on some lake or trail somewhere, uh, to have your sacred imagination engaged and to have an awareness of your own emotional terrain and to be aware of when I'm thinking about my own inner world, what, how am I resonating with what I'm seeing around me? that we could allow this God who is wanting to be like a spiritual director for us so that we might uncover our true selves hidden with God in Christ to be able to talk to us as we are going throughout the day to help us to reimagine and to come in touch with all that is inside of our lives. Verse 5 goes on, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Again, depending on how you look at this, this could sound like a very suffocating God. Hemming in. There's no room. I can't breathe, God. Like, give me, please, some personal space. Or this could be an enveloping God, a loving God, the embrace of a lover who knows us, who sees us, who values us, and whom we can be at rest in and trust in, and the assurance that they will always be with us and by our side. And the psalmist clearly sees it, if not in that particular image, in some image of positive, because it's not Oh, God, you're hemming me in, and I can't stand this. I need a break. Instead, it is such knowledge is too wonderful. I, I can't believe with, with all the ways that I'm tempted to do some retail therapy to think this one next thing is going to be the thing that's surely going to make me happy in life, that, that God says, I'm just with you. I, I delight in you and who I've made you to be, and I, I always want to be with you forever and ever. That's just so high that I cannot attain it. Verse 13 goes on, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. This sense of being wonderfully made, the the word there talks about something unique, something distinct, something striking. This is not some homogenous sense of the world that says like, oh yeah, I know that I'm doing my part because I am conforming to all the expectations of those around me because I am believing that the world can't be any better than it is right now, so we might as well just resign ourselves to live life amongst the status quo, but instead has this idea of someone who says, you know, this smells a little bit like injustice. You know, this smells a little bit like that community over there is getting a raw deal. This feels like I should be able to love my body just as it is. Even at times when perhaps it feels like my body might be betraying me, that I should be able to find the wonder and goodness and the gift of this life, that I can be strikingly different than a world that continues to tell me, no, if you can just get here or do that, have this accomplishment or achievement, then finally, you'll be all that you've been wanting to be. And instead says, no, God has reverently in God's, God's will, God's heart, God's dream for our lives already wonderfully, strikingly, uniquely, differently enabled each and every one of us. But will we see it? Will we live from it? Dante Stewart was reflecting initially about Serena Williams and he says the following, I can't stop thinking about Serena Williams' words. I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to win. I have absolutely nothing to lose. Be clear, it is impossible to embrace your dignity and freedom if you are constantly trying to prove you belong and you're worthy. You are worthy because God's sacredness is on you and because there's only one of you. We have to dismantle a world where white winds are seen as meritocracy and black winds are seen as identity politics. He then quotes from his own book, I was trying to prove to them that we were human, that we loved this country, but that this country didn't love us back. It was like Kathy Park Hong writes, explaining to a person why you exist or why you feel pain or why your reality is distinct from their reality. Only problem is, in their mind, our reality didn't exist. And then he has an affirmation, affirm, my humanity and freedom is my gift. I have nothing to prove or lose. It's a powerful affirmation that I think the psalmist very much would be in accordance with coming from a people group that itself were not the big players on the global scene of their day, um, but instead often were pawns uh, for much larger nation states during whatever type of history we find in the biblical history. This understanding that people don't seem to care about our story, but it's not about trying to be like all the other nations. If you read through the Hebrew Bible, right, this is often where they get in trouble. They're wanting to be like 
the other nations. They're wanting to mimic them. They're wanting to forsake their unique identity and instead just conform to whatever seems to be successful or powerful or working. And we're invited to affirm that our humanity is our gift, that our freedom is our gift to the world. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them yet has existed. Again, the psalmist is tying God's closeness and nearness to also this view of a God that is expansive and transcendent that can somehow know us in the womb or even in this womb of the earth underneath where we are being formed. This is connecting both God's nearness to us and also God's grandiosity, this cosmic nature of who God is that is able to know the beauty and totality of all of us. Because isn't that oftentimes why we're able to sort of wear a Kevlar vest, even to the people that love us and are trying to affirm us the most? Because we just think, like, if you just really, really knew, like, I know you're like my bestie, I know you're my partner, I know you're my family, but like, if you really, 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 really knew, then you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. You'd have a different thought. You, you might leave. And perhaps here, this isn't some sense of God saying like, oh yeah, I know all the creepy, awkward, weird things about you just for the sake of trying to make us creepy, awkward, or weird. But God's saying like, yeah, no, there's everything about your story. You could pick any page and we could read from it and there's nothing about it that's gonna cause me to leave. I love you. I know who I've created you to be. I want you to live into that space. Starlet Thomas shared recently, overcome the fear of being you, the you that doesn't fit into your family's plans, your social circle's comfort zone, or society's categories. Instead, fear dying as a stranger to yourself, having only witnessed the parts pointed out, circled, and categorized. Our passage ends, verse 17, how weighty to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. I try to count them and they are more than the sand. I come to the end and I am still with you. The psalmist realizes, as we all do, our own limitations, our own finiteness, and is aware that this openness to the divine, to a spiritual life, to this companioning spiritual director that God is being for the psalmist is in some ways incomprehensible that this God that has created each and every one of us and placed this beauty and goodness in us is, is beyond our comprehension. And yet, this doesn't lead to fear or, or paralysis. Instead, it, it leads them to just be grateful that God is with us. And this is a communal us, that as we get in touch with who God has created us to be, we are invited to see the beauty of other people. Just this morning, Walter Brueggemann, who's one of the most distinguished scholars of the Old Testament, 
Uh, when I did teach the Old Testament, I quoted him so much that I just started calling him Wally B for shorthand. Uh, and I met him once uh, at my seminary, and I shared this with him. I thought he was going to be really pleased. Like, oh, you quote me so much that you've come up with this uh, endearing nickname. He did not seem pleased. Uh, if you've ever had this, like meeting my idol. And I called you Wally B. Um, but just, just this morning, uh, Walter Brueggemann released uh, an essay, if you will, uh, talking about the totality of both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament and uh, acknowledging that there are texts of rigor that would seem to isolate and alienate those who were welcome to God's family. And that there are also texts of welcome that would seem to be expansive about who God says is welcome to be part of the beloved community. And finally, is saying we have to be honest about how we are interpreting this and what our good news is and who we see Jesus being and ultimately lands at a place where he was inviting us to reconsider as a church, not us as Vox, but the larger church, to reconsider the posture towards the LGBTQ community. And the main thing he points out is how we tend to want to other people. We see their differences, their distinctions as threats to us. Rather, the new ways we might be welcomed in to marvel at all that God is doing through different cultures and people with different lived experiences and identities. We are invited then, as we participate in our own God-belovedness, to also partner with and advocate for all communities to be able to step into and to reclaim and to live from this place of justice. I want to consider, as we prepare to close, uh, an extended quote from Sally McFaig. She writes, I am very interested in people who try to live their faith, who have what I would call a working theology a set of deeply held beliefs that actually function in their personal and public lives. Augustine, John Woolman, Sojourner Truth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dorothy Day, and Martin Luther King Jr. are a few of these people. Each of them struggle to discern God's action in and through their lives and then to express that reality in everything they did. Their theologies became embodied in themselves. As disciples of Christ, they became many incarnations of God's love. We call such people saints, reflections of God, images of God with us in the flesh. They are imitations of what it means to be fully alive, living life from, toward, and with God. They are examples to the rest of us of what a Christ-like life is. They fascinate because in them we see God and the human and intimate connection human lives showing forth different facets of divine power and love. While it may seem outrageous to suggest, I believe each of us is called to this vocation, the vocation of sainthood. Each Christian is asked to examine their life with the goal of discerning the action of God in it and then to express God's power and love in everything. Each of us is expected to have a working theology, one that makes a difference in how we conduct our personal lives and how we act at professional and public levels. 
Made in the image of God, humans are called to grow into that image more fully, to become like God, which for Christians means becoming like Christ, following Christ. And following Christ means following one who, like us, was flesh and bones of the earth. Earthy. It means that Christian saints focus on God's work of helping make all of us, every creature on the planet, fully alive. Christian sainthood is, it appears, a very mundane, a worldly, earthly business. Let's pray. A holy one, beautifully other and deliciously close. Sometimes you seem terribly far, other times unsettlingly near. Move close to us as our being beckons. Know us in ways that free us, all of us. May your steadfast companioning help us find our voice, trusting our God-fashioned self, reveling in your divine touch in the heights and in hard times. The depths of our soul still being uncovered reflect your sacred creativity and most divine delight. May we offer our uniqueness as a participation with creation and community. Help us see ourselves simultaneously holy and holy. Tabernacle with us, enlivening our embodied selves. May each of us show up liberated to love ourselves, liberated to love others. Help us to glimpse this divine goodness blossoming in all its peculiarity in each and every one of us. Amen.